0: Welcome to TWT-FM, a podcast from The World Transformed, an annual festival and year-round political education project committed to delivering political education across the UK in order to build a movement capable of radically transforming society.
1: We'll be releasing weekly podcasts across September to coincide with this year's festival, looking at the big topics with a wide-angle lens you'd expect from TWT.
0: You can now register for a festival pass and view the full September programme at theworldtransformed.org.
1: But for now, turn up your headphones, sit back and listen up. This is The World Transformed. Across the episodes of this series of TWTFM, we've been looking at concepts that have been brought into focus by the coronavirus pandemic. At the root of it, COVID-19 is straightforwardly a medical condition. As such, this final episode will examine illness, how we define it, the impact it has on people's lives, how it is dealt with the world over and how we can reorientate our societies to better care for the ill. To begin, we welcome back writer and activist Ellen Clifford to explain how illness is produced and managed under capitalism.
2: So capitalism's responsible for causing illness in a wide range of ways. Supporters of capitalism would argue that we've had many medical advances you know, that have occurred within the past couple of, de- uh, of centuries. But aside from the question of access to those advances and who benefits from them under a, a profit-driven system... There's also a direct correlation between causation of specific illnesses and the system we live under that puts profit before people. So, you know, for example, illness both physical and mental results when workers are pushed to work long hours without being able to meet their physical or emotional needs. Actually, uh, research has shown that low control, poor quality jobs are actually as bad for, for people's mental health as being unemployed. And then we have poverty. Poverty creates illness, and poverty being a characteristic feature of capitalism, in that in order for some in society to have a lot more, obviously it means others having not enough. Um, And then we've also got uh, the effects of wars. So in Britain, for example, you know many former soldiers relying on on benefits and not able to work anymore due to severe PTSD. And I'd also add add the role of, of the market here in a discussion about capitalism and illness. Um, when use of resources and technological advances are left to the market to determine, a society gets left with all kinds of damaging, unforeseen consequences, such as the effects of pollution, such as uh, illnesses caused by obesity, for example, due to the high sugar content of foods. So or, In another example, there's growing awareness of the links between the development of social media and escalating levels of, of mental distress. Illness is a major concern to capitalism uh, because what it, what, what it represents are, are days when workers are absent, so there's a, a negative impact on productivity and, and therefore on profit lost days are the, are the way they're commonly described. They're obviously more of a concern where workers have entitlements to sick pay. Um, what we've seen over recent years, of course, is, is the introduction of increasingly harsh sickness policies where, for example, repeated periods of sickness trigger disciplinary procedures, even when staff are, are known to have long-term health conditions. And the rise of insecure employment and in, in zero-hour contracts, and a key feature of which is a lack of, of sick pay protections. This concern with sickness absence is discernible in the approach to welfare reform um, adopted under, under New Labour and then rolled out with all its brutal consequences by, by successive Tory governments for, from 2010 onwards. The improving lives, disability work and health papers that that came out of the the department for work and pensions the dwp but those papers really emphasised the numbers of days lost to business each year through illness now bearing in mind that these papers were meant to deal with disabled people people who were too too ill to to work you know a fairly high proportion of, of those people might uh, not to be expected to, to ever work. And yet, you know, throughout these papers, they're, they're emphasising the numbers of days lost to business each year through illness. And they place a, a particular focus on illnesses and impairments that are the leading cause of work absence, and, and that includes muscular skeletal conditions and, and mental health. The model of disability that was to provide a a scientific justification for the approach towards illness and disability that that underpins welfare reform. That was developed by academics in the pay of the DWP and the insurance industry, uh, notably Mansell, Aylwood and Gordon Waddell. And they developed something known as the Waddell and Aylwood biopsychosocial model of disability. And that whole model is based on approaches used for sickness management. As such, it's been soundly, scientifically discredited. There's a very good paper by Tom Shakespeare et al. on that, and it's been discredited as being entirely inappropriate as a way uh, of dealing with long-term illness uh, and disability in the round. Um, And of course, we've seen the terrible human costs of applying this model to the distribution of of -of out-of-work benefits through the work capability assessment with many people being uh, turned down uh, for those benefits who, who just simply Aren't able to earn a living through paid employment. And that, I think the fact that this whole approach—so it's an approach that effectively looks at illness and disability as something that, that you know that we could snap out of if we tried hard enough, if we just had a, a more positive outlook, we could we could uh, get back to or get get into work. You know, the fact that that whole approach is dominated by processes for dealing with sickness management. Um, I think that highlights the driving force behind the welfare reform agenda is being obviously not one that's, that's about the well-being of disabled people, of workers who are ill, Um, but of course it primarily focused on about protecting business profits and reducing numbers uh, that are, as they say, lost to, to business over over the years. The difference between illness and disability is is an interesting question I think. So according to the social model of disability, which is the way that disabled campaigners and socialists view disability, according to the social model, we draw a distinction between illness and impairment on the one hand, those being the physical or mental conditions that that we live with, and disability on the other, with disability being the oppression and discrimination that people living with long-term illnesses and impairments experience on top of our illnesses and impairments. I suspect though that the way the majority of the public perceive the difference is maybe one where illness is a uh, temporary, temporary affliction, if you like, um, and disability is is a is a permanent one. Incre- increasingly, along with this toughening approach to, to sickness management that we've seen, is an individual pathologizing. Of illness, with the attitude increasingly being that illness is our own fault. So if you get ill, it's your own fault for not having enough emotional resilience, for not being able to handle workplace stress, for not putting into practice, you know, the mindfulness you, you were supposed to learn on your half day corporate training, not making sure you've got a, a better life work balance, you know, despite the the number of extra hours unpaid overtime you're being bullied by your manager into taking on, you know, it's your own fault for not eating healthier or exercising regularly and cycling to work every day, you know it's your, your own fault for eating and drinking too much to try and de-stress it's your own fault for not getting enough sleep so as conditions worse than for the working class so is this list of expectations grown of what society is telling us it's our responsibility to do in order to keep healthy Uh, and if we don't do those things and we're not healthy then it's our own fault And in this way, so health's become increasingly individualised and that, of course, distracts away from the socio-economic causes of of poor health that are beyond our control and which governments aren't prepared to address because it doesn't fit with their ideological priorities. And this individualised attitude towards illness has also been applied to disability through welfare reform and, in particular, to, to mental health as well as other invisible impairments, because invisible impairments are much easier to deny because they can't be seen. And therefore, it's much easier to question their validity. People living with chronic illness, for example, are still engaged in a really bitter fight for recognition of the medical basis for their illness, instead of being regarded as having uh, a psychological issue, uh, you know, that, that they because they don't recognize it, because they, you know, maintain, they do have a medical illness, Um, then they're, of course, not engaging in treatment for this psychological issue that that some medical professionals have put their illness down to. Um, They're not engaged in treatment, and therefore, it's seen as their responsibility for that they're not getting better. There's also too little that's publicly known about different forms of, of mental distress. Uh, so for example, research has shown that the primary condition that I live with is associated with key neurological difference. So you know one implication of that is that it's simply not possible uh, to, to snap out of uh, the mental distress that, that I frequently experience and actually understanding those differences, uh, those neurological differences, is absolutely key to being able to to effectively treat the the distress. Under capitalism, people are held responsible for our individual health, and yet access to effective treatments is denied on the basis of cost or or through lack of availability. Research and the development of new drugs is is determined by decisions made by Big Pharma based on what's going to be most profitable to them. Um, Then, of course, therapeutic interventions uh, under welfare reform, the therapeutic interventions for for more complex mental distress have been deprioritized within the mental health system in favor of the the quick fix IAPT approach, which is focused primarily on getting people with lower levels of anxiety and depression back to work as soon as possible. I always think of it as the modern day equivalent of electric shock treatment for, for soldiers suffering. Shell shock in World War I one that was, you know, designed to get them back on the front line as quickly as possible, regardless of of their well-being. So I think as as socialists, I think we need to be aware of and question individualized models of both illness and impairment. Um, And we need to highlight the role of socio-economic structures and profit-driven ideology in causing and maintaining poor health. But I also think Think it's important to think about the different possibilities for health and well-being that could exist under an alternative system where resources were distributed in a coordinated way and according to need.
1: Thanks to Ellen Clifford from Disabled People Against Cuts. Ellen's book The War on Disabled People Capitalism, Welfare and the Making of a Human Catastrophe is out now published by Z Books. It's widely known that the National Health Service was founded after World War II as part of a newly minted welfare state, but it didn't appear from thin air. Up next, Penny Grennan from Tyndale Transformed takes us on a trip back in time to a small Welsh mining village.
0: The potted history of the Tredegar Workmen's Medical Aid Society.
3: Two years ago, before there was a National Health Service, a deputation of miners from West Wales came over to the Rhondda Valley. To discuss a problem with an old friend well, the fact of the matter is, Doctor, we represent two or three thousand men who are at present without a doctor, we really need a doctor like you.
0: The 70th anniversary of the NHS held a special significance for the people of Tradiga, South Wales. Ask any inhabitant and they will tell you that Anaran Bevin, their most famous son, built the National Health Service in imitation of a workers' scheme that provided medical care in the town until 1948. But this claim that Bevin modelled the NHS on the Tredegar Workmen's Medical Age Society is not entirely correct. The truth is always a little more complex. However, the Tredegar Society was one of the most robust comprehensive and democratic of all the various workers' health schemes that existed before the NHS. Its roots lay in the 19th century industrialisation when, in common with other iron and coal businesses, the Tredega Iron and Coal Company appointed a doctor to serve the needs of workers. Compulsory deductions were made from workers' pay and the money was paid to the doctor, a doctor who could only be appointed or dismissed by the company. This company-driven model was not acceptable and in the late 1800s and early 1900s, many workers across South Wales took over and through workers' committees set about enhancing the basic features of the health scheme. Under the new model, doctors were employed on fixed salaries and surplus funds were used to extend the services available to members. By the 1920s, members of the Tredegar Society, which now included town members from among Tredegar's middle class as well as workers not employed by the steel company, had at their disposal the services of five doctors, one surgeon, two pharmacists, a physiotherapist, a dentist and a district nurse. In return for an extra payment of four pennies a week, the Tredegar Society also offered hospital care to members. Depending on the complaint, patients could be treated at the local cottage hospital or at larger hospitals, with more consultant specialists in nearby Newport or Cardiff, further afield in Bristol, Bath, Hereford and even as far as London. The society even owned a car that could take the patient from their home to the railway station where a first-class seat took them to hospital.
3: Every day of the week, the health centre is full. The doctor's wife... Herself, a radiographer, has the job of X-raying each miner every six months. The X-rays keep a check on the chests of miners working in dusty conditions.
0: Unlike the old model of healthcare, the worker-controlled democratic society was responsive to the needs of members, and a wide range of medical and health benefits were made available. Convalescent and maternity homes, sunray and ultraviolet treatment, glasses, false teeth, artificial limbs, dietary supplements, injections, patent foods, drugs and medicines, x-rays and even wigs were prescribed. Given the society's apparent socialism, it is ironic that several features lauded by the progressives for their mutualist qualities were pioneered by the company masters. These included providing treatment for dependent wives and children and instituting a system of payment under which better paid workers subsidise the health care of less well paid colleagues, allowing them to have a higher standard of care than they might otherwise have had. Before nineteen forty eight, British healthcare was a chaotic mix of provision. The importance of the medical arm of the poor law, which provided care for the poorest in communities, the creation of the health insurance system in 1911, the evolution of the voluntary hospital system, where subscribers could sponsor patients for admission, and the development of municipal medicine run by local authorities all provided the context out of which the NHS came. The Tredegar Workmen's Medical Society was certainly part of the jigsaw. In 1937, the progressive think tank political and economic planning believed that workers' medical schemes might form the basis for a national service. And in 1946, the influential magazine Picture Post published an article on the Tredegar scheme titled Where Bevin Got His National Health Plan. But whether any one initiative or service can be truly said to be the source of something as large and complex as the NHS is perhaps doubtful and, in the end, irrelevant. Long-term developments in providing healthcare in Britain clearly had important implications for what was feasible in the 1940s. Existing facilities could hardly be scrapped and replaced by a completely new system. Whatever the case, the Tredegar scheme comprised a comprehensive system of healthcare and medical provision for the entire community, free at the point of use and democratically managed for the good of all. It was undoubtedly inspirational to Bevin, even if he rejected the local basis on which it operated. And it constituted a considerable achievement of which Tredegar is rightly proud.
1: Thanks again to our in-house historian, Penny Grennan, for that potted history. Next, we turn to journalist, commentator, and historian, Vijay Prashad, speaking at the recent Healthcare in Crisis panel as part of this year's World Transformed Festival, to bring us a perspective on international socialist state responses to the COVID-19 pandemic.
3: I'm going to be speaking from the work done by the institute that I direct, called Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, We've done two studies which I encourage you to go and look at. Um, The first study is called Socialism and Corona Shock, where we look very carefully at the experience of Vietnam, Kerala, which is a state in India, Cuba and Venezuela. You see, what we were puzzled by was the fact that a country and not one of the four we looked at, Laos, has still today had no COVID fatalities. Laos shares a border with the People's Republic of China and its seven and some million people, no COVID fatalities. Vietnam, very poor country like Laos, shares a long border with China. Till today, 35 fatalities. How is it possible that Cuba, Venezuela, Laos, Vietnam, and the Indian state of Kerala were, to some extent, able to break the chain of the infection. So we looked at it closely and published a study called Socialism and Corona Shock. And we came up with four different um, parameters that we, we thought were instructive. And I'll go over the four very quickly. The first one was that these governments and their populations this pandemic and the virus, scientifically, the governments of Vietnam, of Kerala, where KK Shailja, the health minister, immediately brought a commission, made a task force to look at what was being heard from the World Health Organization as early as January of 2020. That's the first thing. Secondly, they had a public sector to turn to in Vietnam, in Kerala, even, but more so in Cuba. The government immediately directed the public sector to start producing things that don't require an enormous technological capacity. PPE, masks, hand sanitizers and so on. These were produced at scale to such an extent that Vietnam, a very poor country, which had been bombed by the United States for decades, Vietnam sent protective equipment to the United States. Talk about the way aid flows. Actual medical aid went from socialist Vietnam to one of the richest countries in the world, which didn't have the capacity to direct industry to produce masks and hand sanitizers and so on. That's the second thing. First thing was a science based attitude. Secondly, the public sector was brought to bear. Third, public action. Take Cuba as an example. In Cuba, 29,000 medical students left their dormitories and went door to door in the island of 11 million people to test every single Cuban. 29,000 medical students. The capacity for public action in a place like Cuba or Kerala is much greater than in the West, where non governmental organizations. Have professionalized public action and taken it out of the hands of ordinary people. Volunteerism, you know, which the great Che Guevara made a foundation of Cuban society. Volunteerism is fundamental to Kerala's society in India, where there is a communist government and where youth organizations immediately went out there to feed the elderly, to make sure people were fine, to build washing basins in bus stations and so on. The level of public action in these countries was extraordinary. It's nothing that one sees in Italy or in the United Kingdom or United States or Brazil, so on, where public action has actually been delegitimized politically, even. You know, public action is seen almost like dissent, unfortunately, trade union activity and so on. The fourth aspect that we looked at was internationalism. You see, these parts of the world didn't truck in basic, disgusting racism like the Trump administration or the Bolsonaro administration, they didn't waste time on that. They were internationalists. They were there to tackle the virus, to help people. That was essentially their motive. Internationalism was core. sending supplies. I already talked about Vietnam sending supplies to the United States. You see, if we take the lessons from these socialistic parts of the world and, you know, some of you will debate is Vietnam really socialist. Always happy to have that debate, friends. In this time, it's puzzling that these are the kinds of questions people ask when we see these countries have a public sector state intervention that provides great relief to people. That seriously is the question that you have in your head. Anyway, the two quick final points I want to make one this Vaccine that will be created must be a global vaccine. Look at how capitalism has disrupted pharmaceutical industries and how imperialism has impacted it as well. First, quickly, capitalism, 35 pharmaceutical companies have earnings in the 11 trillion dollar range. Imagine that they are just making money off it. Their sense that they are there to help people is minimal. Imperialism. The American government bombed the Al Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Sudan in 1998 because Bill Clinton wanted to cover up evidence that he was having an affair. Now, I don't care about Bill Clinton's affair. I'm not a moral person like that, but I do care about the bombing. I'm very moral about the bombing of Sudan's only pharmaceutical factory, the Al Shifa factory in 1998. Recently, if you care, in Sudan, there was a Twitter campaign where the hashtag was "medicine is non-existent." And do you know why the medicine is non-existent in Sudan? Because the United States blew up in 1998 its main pharmaceutical factory. So when we talk about a people's vaccine, non-profit vaccine, gotta understand that countries around the world have had their medical infrastructure, pharmaceutical infrastructure destroyed. In the case of Sudan, by a bombing raid the rest of the world by the debt crisis. And this is my final point. We have to argue for fundamental debt cancellation. Currently, the Global South is experiencing an 11 trillion dollar external debt crisis. We have calculated that offshore tax havens are holding at a minimum 32 trillion dollars of the wealth of the plutocracy in the planet. The external debt of the third world is $11 trillion. There should be an absolute cancellation of this debt so that all the resources in countries like Burkina Faso, in India, in Argentina, and so on, can be put towards tackling the pandemic, put towards healthcare care workers, and put towards the development and manufacturing of this vaccine. If you are not for total debt cancellation, You don't understand how we're going to be able to both tackle this vaccine and tackle the health crisis that the pandemic has produced and has revealed the deeper structural health crisis that the pandemic has revealed.
1: That was Vijay Prashad, excerpted from the Healthcare in Crisis, Building International Solidarity Panel at this year's TWT. You can hear the whole of that discussion over at the World Transformed YouTube channel. Coronavirus has added extra strain to the already bulging mental health crisis in the UK. We caught up with two activists who both work and use mental health services to hear their thoughts on the difficulties facing the sector.
4: Hi, I'm Roz and I work in the mental health field and I've got lived experience of using mental health services and mental illness and I'm an editor for AKE, which is an intersectional feminist magazine exploring women, trans and non-binary people's experience of illness, health, bodies and pain. I'm Ellie
5: and I would describe myself as mad. I've been mentally ill from childhood really and I've been involved in the mad activism world for about six months since the beginning of Covid really and before that was a campaigner I would say for about four or five years. I began calling myself a mental health activist and doing what I consider mental health activism more directly at the beginning of COVID and I, I essentially see the difference between campaigning as activi- and activism as campaigning kind of being working within a system, often working with charities etc to try and make change whereas activism is kind of actively taking a step outside and saying, I'm not going to play by those rules. I want to make new ones. Mm. Um, Because for me, I can imagine effective therapy, but it's very hard for me to imagine effective NHS services because the NHS is run by... The government, it's like very hard to give individualised therapy, I feel, to provide people with the individualised therapy that they need within a system that is, its primary health outcome is work. Like there are some disabled people for whom the, those uh, morals, those ideals of like independence and self-sufficiency and work Are oppressive. That leads to nothing more than like being isolated in your own on in your own at home. You know, it leads to repeated relapses and being forced to go back into situations and circumstances without the proper support. Um like independence means having support removed from you. So I don't know how it's possible to provide. Everyone particularly like people with long term disabilities with the health care that they need within that system or that service mm. i i don't know that doesn't mean that I don't think that there's like hope for people to get better. I really do, but I think that uh i've I've personally moved over to a more activist route and role because Peer support and community support for me has been vital um, for my own well-being. Um, it's not the only kind of support that I have. I also do art therapy for charity and I access other bits. But I I think the future of healthcare, the answers will come from grassroots and activist communities. I don't think it will come from professionals. but I don't proclaim to
4: know the answer. (laughs) It's hard to imagine an alternative, I think, because we're so we're so embedded within the system, which is about productivity and work, and the whole concept of recovery is about recovering to a baseline of productivity, really. That's you know, you have the kind of outcome stars and Goal-based thing, but the goal is getting you back into the workforce. It's, I guess, it is as Ellie was saying. It's about community and kind of looking beyond the individual. But I don't really know what it looks like. I, it's, it's a, you know, an unimaginable uto- utopia. <laughs> I would say,
5: like, I've been really impressed with the organization Black Minds Matter. Um, Mm. who began in May, June, I think. Um, And they've done phenomenally well in terms of crowdfunding and just getting the organisation up and running really fast. Um, And they're providing free therapy for black people with black therapists and practitioners. Um, And... There's short courses of therapy at 10 weeks, but like that's the kind of initiative that I would like to see more mm. of and that I would like to see grow and supported. Um, that came from
4: grassroots level. Um, and yeah, we need more of that. I think also, like you mentioned peer support, I think that kind of thing as well is really valuable and that I guess that goes some way to breaking down hierarchies because peer support is about the shared space and a shared experiences, is you know shared lived experience and it's about co-productivity and working together to form something which can be of benefit to the whole group and so that on a kind of that's a really small scale of what could be expanded on and brought into kind of the way we run our communities and our society of basing it on that kind of co-production model and actually thinking how can one thing be of benefit to everyone here?
5: I think on a personal level, is I, do, I really agree with that. On a personal level, like I've been unemployed because of my mental health for years and I've had to do a lot of like reckoning and reasoning with what I see as value. And what I see as wellness, and what I understand as functioning, like I, I kind of say I've been ill for. I'm 28 years old now. I've been ill for two decades, more than, um, and I've pretty much accepted that I'm always going to be ill to a level, but I can function. There are things that I do, and that I do very well. Whilst I'm ill and I've learned to live with my condition and use it to my advantage as much as I can. Um, I'm not saying it's great and anything like that, but like you get you get dealt the cards that you're dealt. And I think that within peer support, within mad COVID, certainly, there's a far greater understanding on of what Value is and mm. what functioning is, um, and I think that is a really important part of their support, and that's an important part of support in general that people aren't able to get within the NHS and within that model of healthcare, which is so uh, focused on work.
4: Yeah, and the individual.
1: Yeah. Thanks to Ellie Bradford from Mad COVID and Roz Reynolds Gray from Ake for sharing that conversation. Next, we hear from artist David Tovey on his remarkable journey through multiple illnesses and on the therapeutic power of art. Please be aware this item contains discussion of suicide.
6: I'm an ex-soldier and I was trained as a chef and uh, ended up finding myself based in London and owning my own pub restaurant. Because of the pressures and the stresses of that, I used to drink a lot. And, and, and other things and party a lot. And in 2011, uh, when I was 36, I had a massive stroke, which was the, I, I suppose, catalyst for my life falling apart at that time. First of all, obviously, I, I couldn't work because of the loss of movement in my arm. My I, I wasn't thinking straight. I couldn't really Uh, read properly uh, stuff, it wasn't really going into my my brain very well and because of that I had to give up my businesses and that was sort of like the catalyst of sort of like major change in my life. I then got diagnosed with um, a thing called neurosyphilis um, which is a blood disorder um, which goes into your spinal cord and then starts sending you mad and, and ultimately can kill you And um, at the same time, when I got diagnosed and put into hospital with that, four days later, I got diagnosed with colon cancer and started treatment on this. Ten days after that, whilst I was in hospital having my treatment, I was accidentally given a intermuscular injection into my vein. Um, It caught one of the splinter veins um, and caused me to have a cardiac arrest all this pressure and everything was going on, losing your businesses and stuff like that, it's going to affect you. I pretty much, I guess, had pretty much of a nervous breakdown um, and tried taking my own life uh, several times. Uh, I think it was five times in one one week. It, it sort of brought to head that there was something else wrong and, and at the time I didn't know what it was um, and it turned out that I was HIV positive as well. That hit me really hard. Um, like really, really difficult uh, time. My mental health obviously was wrecked because of it. and wasn't working, my health deteriorated and I ended up losing my flat and having to move out onto the streets. And when you're living in a car, not being able to take your HIV meds and stuff like this um, and other treatments, everything falls apart. You know, not just, you know, your mental health which obviously has the biggest impact on everything but your physical health as well, because you're not eating three square meals a day. You're not sleeping properly because you're not in a bed. You're you're open to all elements. You're open to the abuse from the general public, which is huge. And yet again, um, it got to the stage that my mental health um, and my physical health have got so bad that I didn't want to wake up. I basically, I, I went into a locked park lake late at night and I started to kill myself again. And this guy stopped me, a guy called Gavin, um, who was a park enforcement officer. And he went, what the fuck are you doing? And it threw me, completely threw me. And because the first time, why everything was happening, when I was ill, when I was on the streets, no one had ever asked me why. He sat there, he got me some food, he gave me some money. He got me into a night shelter for the following day. He gave me a choice. And I, and I think it was that trust that he put in me as a perfect stranger that was the, the, the turning point in my life. I needed something tangible to hold on to to help with my recovery. So I'd give myself projects and I set up a thing called Man on Bench, which was named after Gavin, the guy who saved my life and it was a street fashion show. And I decided to get old rubbish that had been thrown away by people to represent homelessness, turn that rubbish into couture fashion pieces, and do street fashion shows. I did my first one in 2015 uh, on the South Bank, just guerrilla styled it. And that helped me so much because suddenly people were seeing my art and, and it was my way of saying, just because I've been through all this crap, doesn't mean I'm fucking useless. And and I believe we can do the same with anyone who's going through any mental health problems, homelessness, any ill health and stuff like that. It's, it's about giving control and power back to these people. So by doing these shows, I, I found one, it helped me start to rebuild my life, my identity, my confidence. And my health, um, because at the time I was still, I'm still ill. I still have these things going on, but there was no pressure because I was the one in control of that that journey. Back in 2016, um, I set up a homeless arts festival called the One Festival of Homeless Arts, and and I did it with my disability benefit at the time. And through the work I do with that, I, I started to meet a lot of. Other artists, uh, uh, um, homeless and ex-homeless, um, who were going through the same sort of situations that I was going through. So I started um, um, going and helping at an art group um, and I've been volunteering there for three years now, going in and doing art classes every week. It doesn't matter what you draw, it's, it's about giving somebody the excuse to come and do some drawing or some painting or whatever they want to do. It, it can't always be just about housing and sorting your health out you have to think about your well-being and you have to look at it in a more holistic approach. So you know arts has to be in that jigsaw of homeless support it has to be you know we all know that arts and culture is a human right so why shouldn't a homeless person have that right to be able to access the arts as well It's terrible out there um, and there's a lot of reasons why it is there's no one answer. For it, And uh, so we have to think there isn't just one answer for helping either.
1: Thanks to artist David Tovey there. The mid 20th century saw in some countries across Europe a major re-evaluation of the role of psychiatry in society, often promoted explicitly by socialists. We spoke to Professor John Foote about the work of radical Italian anti-fascist psychiatric professionals in abolishing the asylums and what we can learn from them.
7: If you were in asylum in the 1950s and 1960s in Italy, but probably in most countries in the world, you didn't have any rights. You would often get your hair shaved off, you'd get your wedding ring taken off, you couldn't wear your own clothes. Um, you didn't have any right over your own treatment. Uh, much of the treatment was pretty much like torture. They were called hospitals, but they, didn't, they weren't anything like a hospital that we would recognize. And you could finish up in the asylum for all kinds of things, alcoholism, epilepsy, teenage pregnancies, all kinds of things. And in the 1950s, there were about 100,000 Italians locked inside these forbidding buildings. And around the early 1960s, a group of psychiatrists, many of whom had been anti-fascists during the Second World War and continued to be anti-fascists, many of whom came from the left, they decided that this, this system was, was not working and it was also inhumane. While working in the system, they decided they wanted to change the way that psychiatric hospitals rat were run so kind of reformed them but also in some cases they wanted to abolish them altogether and the leader of that movement was a man called Franco Basaglia he was from Venice uh, he was born in 1924 he'd been in prison as an anti-fascist and he became head of an asylum in a place called Gorizia uh, in the northeast of Italy right on the border with Yugoslavia And when he took over there, he decided he didn't like the place, but he still continued to run it. And he did things, very simple things like opening up doors and uh, bringing in mirrors and letting patients wear their own clothes and opening a bar and a hairdresser and things like that. But he also wrote an article in 1964 saying all psychiatric hospitals should be closed down. So he was quite radical in his kind of outlook. And although at first nobody really noticed what was going on in Gorizia, by the end of the 60s, um, it became a kind of example for many people. People came from all over the world. And in 1968, there was the movement of 68 and this kind of combined together. And the people in Gorizia, the team that Pazalia put together, wrote a book called The Negated Institution, which was a bestseller. And from there, you know, the movement grew um to it was never a majority i don't think of people it was never a majority of the general public or of psychiatrists but it was a very strong minority and it's um you know it managed to affect large numbers of people with mental illness and large numbers of institutions and get a lot of people on board in trying to change these institutions so bazalia and his and the people who who work with him and other people in the world at that time really question the idea that someone was a schizophrenic or was depressed and that was a kind of label they carried for their whole lives if you look at the medical records i've looked at quite a lot of medical records they kind of write at the top you know right as soon as they come in depressed um schizophrenic paranoid schizophrenic and that kind of that's they carry that that's like there's you can't be cured of those things uh, especially the the schizophrenic label um and bizarrely overturned that He, he turned that around he said no you're just a person. You, you've happened to be in an asylum. You've got problems. I've got problems. Let's talk about it. I'm suspending any diagnosis because all the diagnosis is going to do is get in the way of how I understand you as a person, how you understand me. So they talked and he, there's great stories about him talking to people four days and four nights about their lives, you know, and then you can understand why they are in this asylum and why they want to commit suicide or whatever they want to do. And so he, he really suspended the whole idea of, of of a diagnosis. And that was very radical because most psychiatrists couldn't deal with that. The system couldn't deal with that um, because it was all built around labelling people. And of course, this took away a lot of the stigma around mental illness where you're dangerous or people are scared of you and so on. So, you know, the whole questioning of the idea of the way that psychiatrists saw mental illness was crucial to the whole project and to the idea that these people can function just as well on the outside and probably better and actually in some cases it's the asylum itself that's making you ill. When he started to reform asylums, he, one of the things he did was empower the patients so the patients took control of their own lives and he used to have these meetings every morning at 10 o'clock uh, where the patients ran the meeting and voted on things that took place in the hospital and the, the doctors just sat sat in the in the audience, um, and listened, and spoke, and no white coats. None of the doctors wore white coats. You couldn't actually tell. And uh, you know, he, he democratized the institution. He made people he gave people control over their own treatment up to a certain point. These are, these radical psychiatrists, the the reformers, and some of the major parties actually decided that something had to be done at a national level. And in 1978, a law was passed. Um, called, it's, it's called the Basalia Law, that's a bit of a strange way of thinking about it because it was inspired by this movement and it basically said all asylums have to be closed down, all psychiatric hospitals have to be closed down, people with what's called mental illness have to be, um, go to daycare centres or have to be found work or have to be given other kinds of support and um, you can't build any more psychiatric hospitals. Of course it was then a very long process. close them down. But that law was the first law in the world that did this and it's been a model for many other countries including countries the size of Brazil who want to reform their mental health systems. It wasn't always successful the way that the Brazilians as they were called or, or the movement operated. I mean they took risks. They knew they were taking risks. For example people were released into society who then went on and committed crimes and murdered people. And uh, these risks were very high because the people who, who paid the price were the, the people who were injured and, and murdered, but also the, the doctors were blamed for these crimes. Basalia himself was charged with manslaughter on two occasions, he was cleared, and some of his equip, the group who worked around him. So there were contradictions in the, in the, in the dangers that they, they knew that they had to take risks to, as it were, free the vast majority. And he said, you know, people get murdered all the time, but no one cares. But because it happens in my on my watch, then everyone says it's because of mental illness. So, you know, he really pushed back on that. And sometimes, you know, it really depended on people giving their whole lives to the cause. And I think those of us who, are, who have become, been political activists or are still political activists know what this means. You know, you burn out. And Bazalia demanded 100% commitment and a lot of his followers burnt out and and, and couldn't do it anymore and, and went to be, become academics or, or became private practitioners and, and it, you know it, it demanded so much commitment because you know he wanted his his, um, his team to be in the hospital 24 hours a day and to be talking to the patients and to be helping them and it was really hard and really stressful and so this this affected also a lot of the people in the movement. The movement in Italy was was not in isolation. There were lots of books being written. There was a movement emerging in the UK, uh, the work of R.D. Lang, um, the work of David Cooper. Um, there were other... Foucault's work in France. All of these texts were circulating, some of them sociologists, some of them psychiatrists, some of them historians, some of them radicals. But they all, I think at root, they all believed that the system is, at that time was wrong. And they all believed... That the asylum, as it was at that time, was a horror. I think today we have, you know, a mental health crisis that's been talked about so much. It's almost like a cliche. We don't even know the extent of what COVID has done to people's lives across the world. We're having quite a lot of surveys and indications of mental health problems in all kinds of people, a whole range of ages and classes and so on. And if we think about these institutions today, it seems crazy that we should g- gather people together, institutions and treat them in that way. That still goes on. There are still asylums. There are still asylums in France. There are still asylums in Britain. And some countries still have kind of asylums, I think, of 1950s-style asylums. I mean, they don't look like the ones that we would remember from films or we've seen on documentaries. You still lock people up. You still um, think of mental illness as a kind of crime. And there are large numbers of people with mental what we would call mental illness in, in prisons um, across the world. So it's incredibly relevant, the, the, the writings, but I think above all the practice of what went on there, the idea of um, listening to people, the idea of them controlling their own treatment, um, I think those things are incredibly relevant. But I think one of the interesting things about what Bazalia said was this isn't, isn't just about mental health, this is about uh, medical health, this is about schools, this is about factories, this is about universities, this isn't just about the people with mental illness, it's about everyone. Uh, it's a liberation for everybody and i think today we often see mental i think we've gone backwards in many ways mental illness is seen often as still as a dangerous thing in the way it's reported in the press and many of the gains of the 60s are being rolled back and people are being isolated and uh, we need to kind of fight against that i wear it for the sick and lonely old for the reckless
6: ones whose bad trip left them cold I wear the blackened mourning for the lives that could have been. Each week we lose a hundred fine young men. And I wear
1: it... Thanks again to Professor John Foot. As we approach the end of the show, and indeed the series, we wanted to look toward the future. Who better to turn to than friend of the festival, Lynn Seagal, co-author of The Care Manifesto, released this week by Verso Books, for a vision of how we could radically reimagine the role of care in our society.
8: I'm in a small collective, of course, called the Care Collective, which has just published its Care Manifesto. And the subtitle of our manifesto is the politics of interdependence. And so the politics of interdependence is absolutely about rethinking what it is to be vulnerable, what it is to be needy, and what it is to be ill and not in the best of health. Now, of course, the needs of the ill have come so much to the fore right now with COVID. But long before COVID-19 hit, a crisis around care had been escalating, especially in the UK as well as elsewhere, because so many of our services had already been slashed and priced out of the reach of many, especially of the disabled, the sick, the, and the elderly. While whilst our hospitals had routinely already been overwhelmed, they were already in crisis with staff shortages, with lack of care in elderly care homes. And this has been part and parcel of multinational corporations making huge profits out of financialising and over-leveraging in care homes, whilst care in the set in the care sector became ever more a part of the corporate gig economy, making precarious workers not only more common, but routinely overstretched, more vulnerable, and of course, therefore less able to do their work of caring. So all this means that today there are way too many people lacking either the time or the resources to care for others adequately, even those they might wish to be caring for at home in need of assistance within their own families. And this crisis, we know, is particularly dire among the elderly with 1.4 million people with unmet care needs. And indeed, in this crisis, in the pandemic, what we saw was... Patients, elderly patients already with COVID being sent back to care homes where it ran rampant through those institutions. And in the early weeks of the pandemic, the deaths of these elderly people were not even recorded. So that's the sort of carelessness with which our society has been run to date. And another thing it's important to note when we think about care and the problems of the moment is that it's usually been women who are somehow expected to cope with the escalating needs whenever they occur. So women who are often themselves in waged work nowadays with very little time off to put any extra energy into caring if the care needs are at home or if they're not at home, they're precisely the people who've been most exploited in waged work because care work is weirdly seen as unproductive work, not the sort of work producing profits, even though it's absolutely essential. In the Care Manifesto, therefore, we draw on the work of many socialist feminists in trying to think about um, how we should see care today. Well, we want to make use of, Some of the ideas of that post-welfare state that Beveridge and others set up when the hope was that we would care for each other from cradle to grave. We don't want to return to that top-down sexist and also racist practices that we saw after 45 and that we still see today where those doing the hardest jobs in caring are usually women and ethnic minority women at that. So, you know, revaluing care begins from the idea that we all share a common belonging within our societies and thinking about how we can enrich that common belonging so that um, instead of thinking about, as in neoliberal ideas, that um, being cared for by the nanny state simply cultivates dependencies. In fact, we think that a caring state would be doing exactly the the opposite. The ideal neoliberal subject is someone who is always tough and independent. And really it began with Thatcher, the attempt to demonize any notion of dependency. Of course, how they see dependency is always being dependent on the care of the state or being dependent on our communities or even needing care in our families, all that was to be pushed aside for the notion of individualised self-help. And we see this especially in the ballooning self-care industry, which relegates care to something we are all supposed to buy for ourselves on an individual basis. That's been the heart of the profits being made by those who've been profiteering from the care industry and indeed from sickness of late. So that's why we want to begin with a completely alternative model of care, a very expansive and open model of care that sees that our care for each other is completely dependent on the sorts of resources which are out there in the world, which are enabling us to care. To be able to provide adequate care We have to have communities that are going to assist us to do that. So in our manifesto, we identify important things that can help us develop caring communities. First of all, commitment to the mutual aid that we've seen flourishing under the pandemic, simply wanting to live in societies where we can see that we're able to care for each other. And secondly, then, we are, we are going to need not the contraction as we've seen especially over the last 10 years, but a new expansion of public resources and spaces which foster interconnection, including in and around public hospitals, in and around care homes, the you know more public parks and, and ability to borrow the things we might need which we lack at any particular time for taking care of each other as well as taking care of ourselves. So we begin from the need to properly value caring and seeing caring as a crucial capacity, a capacity that we need to talk about and think about from our schools onwards to see it as something which is highly skilled, which actually is difficult. In the manifesto, we talk about the mutual aid that got set up during the heyday of AIDS, of the trauma of AIDS in the 1980s, where, on the one hand, people were determined to try and care for each other gay people caring for other gay people who were ill but also to be demanding from government the resources that they needed in order to be able to care. In other words we want a state that can ensure a smooth provision of services and resources to allow for greater democracy at every level so those even in care homes or or in hospitals, can feel they have some say in what is happening to them. And those who are providing care will also have some say in how the work they're doing is done. I do always want to try and inject some hope into what is undoubtedly such very frightening times when it's simply all too easy to despair. The first thing we can celebrate at this moment, even if we are feeling most dismal, if we are ill and suffering in all sorts of ways, is that during the COVID crisis we're in, and very much despite our government, care for the vulnerable has been taken seriously by large swathes of the population, not only here, but globally. Now, of course, this may well fade till the next crisis once we have a vaccine for COVID-19, but it does provide us just with a moment for thinking of the possibilities which arguing for some different sort of politics, a politics of care, especially a politics of care for the sick, can begin. As we now know, it's always possible at least to try to help to create different forms of hope. As we say, hope is not something that is just found or held, but something that we have to make ourselves. And that, I presume, is exactly what the world transforms will always be trying to do.
1: So that's it for this series of TWTFM. But don't worry, we'll be back before you know it.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of TWTFM and would like us to continue producing the podcast after the TWT20 Festival is over, please consider supporting us at theworldtransformed.org forward slash support.
1: This show, like the festival, is a collective effort. So big ups to everyone who's contributed across the series. Special shout outs have to go to James Roadnight, Sarah Valden, Aaron Keller, Charlie Clark and Penny Grennan for their outstanding behind-the-scenes work. My name's Matt Huxley. We hope we've left you ready to imagine, demand, and build a world transformed.